And we'll be taking up at chapter uh, 39, Akura's return journey and his vision of Vishnu Loka within the Jamuna River. Before we go onward, do, would any of you like to make any comments, reflections from the last readings? Yes. And um, here's the new microphone. 90% better. Reception and production. Close the door. I really like the part about Krishna's pastimes are tangible facts for the devotees. <laughs> I thought that was like so amazing. I know. Well, one thing is you were singing, There's a way in which the Lord... He's sleeping and he's dreaming, but it, that's our, the reality of the material world is manifested even as he's doing his pastime of yoga nidra. It makes a difference to us how the whole material world is manifest and everything. Even for him, it's just an incidental. Yeah. What else? Indranuj in the hot corner. Uh, from the very beginning of the chapter, I just jotted down, uh, without Krishna consciousness, decorations on the dead body are useless. I just heard Prabhupada saying in a lecture this morning about how the body ends up as stool or ashes. But during the lifetime, most people, they give all their full attention to taking care of the body, even though it ends up as stool or ashes. NVG. Not very good. BGIF. Better get it fixed. What else? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I was just uh, really struck by the way that Akura was thinking about the Lord on his way to Vrindavan. Um, just in general, I just thought it was really profound and deep and ecstatic. It's uh, an in interesting situation, isn't it? He's sent by by Kamsa, who already told him that he's bringing him back to kill him. Meanwhile, Akur is a pure devotee. And he even mentions in that section that even though I'm on a dastardly mission, Krishna knows my heart. He knows I'm sincere and I'm a pure devotee. And uh, it's interesting, as you were saying, that oftentimes, even while performing pure devotional service, there may be a very complicated situation. Throughout the Bhagavatam, we find those like with Vritrasara, who's an enemy of the demigods, apparently, but still he's a pure devotee. And then, of course, on the battlefield of Kukshetra, you have Bhishma, who ends up, as Prabhupada says, on the wrong side because of political reasons, but he's a Mahajan and a pure devotee in his own right. So just because somebody ends up 
the wrong place at the wrong time doesn't mean they're not a pure devotee. Isn't it? Mahabhavi, what do you think? Here, you say it in the mic. Then it becomes a tangible fact. Uh, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're continuing on with Akura's return journey and his vision of Vishnu Loka within the Jamuna River. And thanks to everyone who's joined us online. I don't know what time it is where you are, but it must be... I mean, if it's America, it's in the wee hours of the morning. It's midnight in California. Anybody on from California? If anybody's in America, you can sign in and say, hey, we'd like to recognize you. Okay. Akura was warmly received by Lord Krishna and Nanda Maharaj and offered a resting place for the night. In the meantime, the two brothers, Balaram and Krishna, went to take their supper. Akura sat on his bed and began to reflect that all the desires he had contemplated while coming from Mathura to Vrindavan had been fulfilled. Lord Krishna is the husband of the goddess of fortune. Being pleased with his pure devotee, he can offer whatever the devotee desires. But the pure devotee does not ask anything from the Lord for his personal benefit. After taking their supper, Krishna and Balaram came to bid goodnight to Akura and asked him how Kamsa was dealing with their friends and relatives. Krishna then inquired into Kamsa's plans. The Supreme Personality of God had then informed Akura that his presence was very welcome. Krishna inquired from him whether all their relatives and friends were well and free from all kinds of ailments. Krishna stated that he was very sorry that his maternal uncle Kamsa was the head of the kingdom. He said that Kamsa was the greatest anomaly in the whole system of government and that they could not expect any welfare for the citizens while he ruled. Then Krishna said, My father has undergone much tribulation simply from my being his son. For this reason also he has lost many other sons. I think myself so fortunate that you have come as my friend and relative. My dear Uncle Akura, Please tell me the purpose of your coming to Vrindavan. After this inquiry, Akura, who belonged to the dynasty of Yadu, explained the recent events in Mathura, including Kamsa's attempt to kill Vasudev, the father of Krishna. He related the things which had happened after the disclosure by Narada that Krishna was the son of Vasudev, hidden by Vasudev in the house of Nanda Maharaj. Akura narrated all the stories regarding Kamsa. He told how Narada had met Kamsa and how he had and how he himself was deputed by Kamsa to come to Vrindavan. Akura explained to Krishna that Narada had told Kamsa all about Krishna's being transferred from Mathura to Vrindavan just after his birth and about his killing all the demons sent by Kamsa. Akura then explained to Krishna the purpose of his coming to Vrindavan to take him back to Mathura. After hearing of these arrangements, Balaram and Krishna, who are very expert in killing opponents, mildly laughed at the plans of Kamsa. 
They immediately informed Nanda Maharaj that Kamsa had invited all the cowherd men and boys to go to Mathura to participate in the ceremony known as Dhanur Yogya. Kamsa wanted them all to go there to participate in the function. On Krishna's word, Nanda Maharaj at once called for the cowherd men and asked them to collect milk and all kinds of milk products to present to the king in the ceremony. He also sent instructions to the police chief of Vrindavan to tell all the inhabitants about Kamsa's great Dhanurd Yagya function and invite them to join. Nanda Maharaj informed the coward men that they would start the next morning. They therefore arranged for the cows and bulls to carry them all to Mathura. When the gopis heard that Akura had come to take Krishna and Balaram away from Mathura, they became overwhelmed with anxiety. Some of them became so aggrieved that their faces turned black and they began to breathe warmly and had palpitations of the heart. They discovered that their hair and clothes immediately loosened. Hearing the news that Krishna and Balaram were leaving for Mathura, others who were engaged in household duties stopped working as if they had forgotten everything like a person who is called forth to die and leave this world at once. Others immediately fainted due to separation from Krishna. Remembering his attractive smile and his talks with them, the gopis became overwhelmed with grief. They all remembered the characteristics of the personality of Godhead, how he moved within the area of Vrindavan, and how, with joking words, he attracted all their hearts. Thinking of Krishna and their imminent separation from him, the gopis assembled together with heavily beating hearts. They were completely absorbed in thought of Krishna, and with tears falling from their eyes, they spoke as follows. O Providence, you are so cruel. It appears that you do not know how to show mercy to others. By your arrangement, friends contact one another, but before they can fulfill their desires, you separate them. This is exactly like a child's game that has no meaning. It is very abominable that you arrange to show us beautiful Krishna, whose bluish curling hair beautifies his broad forehead and sharp nose, and who is always smiling to minimize all grief in this material world, and then arrange to separate him from us. O Providence, you are so cruel. But most astonishingly, you appear now as a kura, which means not cruel. In the beginning, we appreciated your workmanship in giving us these eyes to see the beautiful face of Krishna. But now, just like a foolish creature, you are taking away our eyes by not letting us see Krishna here anymore. Krishna, the son of Nanda Maharaj, is also very cruel. He must always have new friends. He does not like to keep friendship for a long time with anyone. We gopis of Vrindavan, having left our homes, friends and relatives have become Krishna's maidservants, but he is neglecting us and going away. He does not even look upon us, although we are completely surrendered unto him. Now all the young girls in Mathura will have the opportunity. They are expecting Krishna's arrival, and they will enjoy his sweet smiling face and will drink its honey. Although we know that Krishna is very steady and determined, we are afraid that as soon as he sees the beautiful faces of the young girls in Mathura, he will forget himself. We fear he will become controlled by them and will forget us, for we are simple village girls. 
he will no longer be kind to us. We therefore do not expect Krishna to return to Vrindavan. He will not leave the company of the girls in Mathura. The gopis began to imagine the great functions in the city of Mathura. Krishna would pass through the streets and the ladies and young girls in the city would see him from the balconies of their respective houses. Mathura city contained different communities then known then as Dasharha, Bhoja, Undhaka, and Sattvata. All these communities were different branches of the same family in which Krishna appeared, namely the Yadu dynasty. They were all expecting the arrival of Krishna. It had already been ascertained that Krishna, who is the resting place of the goddess of fortune and the reservoir of all pleasure and transcendental qualities, was going to visit Mathura city. The gopis then began to condemn the activities of Akura. They stated that he was taking Krishna, who was more dear than the dearest to them, and who was the pleasure of their eyes. He was being taken from their sight without being informed, without their being informed or solaced by Akura. Akura should not have been so merciless, but should have taken compassion on them. The gopis went on to say, the most astonishing feature is that Krishna, the son of Nanda, without consideration, has already seated himself on the chariot. From this it appears that Krishna is not very intelligent. Yet he may be very intelligent, but he is not very merciful. Not only Krishna, but all the coward men are so callous that they are already yoking the bulls and calves for the journey to Mathura. The elderly persons in Vrindavan are also merciless, they do not take our plight into consideration and stop Krishna's journey to Mathura. Even the demigods are very unkind to us. They are also not impeding his going to Mathura. The gopis prayed to the demigods to create. The gopis thus decided to obstruct the passage through which the chariot of Krishna was supposed to pass. They began to talk among themselves. We have passed a very long night, which seemed only a moment engaged in the rasa dance with Krishna. We looked at his sweet smile and embraced him and talked with him. Now how shall we live, even for a moment, if he goes away from us? At the end of the day, in the evening, along with his elder brother Balaram, Krishna would return home with his friends. His face would be smeared with the dust raised by the hooves of the cows, and he would smile and play on his flute and look upon us so kindly. How shall we be able to forget him? How shall we be able to forget Krishna, who is our life and soul? He has already taken away our hearts in so many ways throughout our days and nights. And if he goes away, there is no possibility of our continuing to live. Thinking like this, the gopis became more and more grief-stricken at Krishna's leaving Vrindavan. They could not check their minds, and they began to cry loudly, calling the different names of Krishna. Oh, dear Damodar, dear Madhava. The gopis cried all night before the departure of Krishna. As soon as the sun rose, Akura finished his morning bath, got in the chariot and started for Mathura with Krishna and Balaram. Nanda Maharaj and the cowherd men got up on bullock carts after loading them with big earthen pots filled with yogurt, milk, ghee, and other milk products and then they began to follow the chariot of Krishna and Balaram. In spite of Krishna's asking the gopis not to obstruct their way, they all surrounded the chariot and stood up to see Krishna with pitiable eyes. 
Krishna was very much affected upon seeing the plight of the gopis. But his duty was to start from Mathura, for this was foretold by Narada. Krishna therefore consoled the gopis. He told them that they should not be aggrieved. He was coming back very soon after finishing his business. But they could not be persuaded to disperse. The chariot, however, began to head west, and as it proceeded, the minds of the gopis followed it as far as possible. They watched the flag on the chariot as long as it was visible. Finally, they could see only the dust of the chariot in the distance. The gopis did not move from their places, but stood until the chariot could not be seen at all. They remained standing still as if they were painted pictures. All the gopis decided that Krishna was not returning immediately, and with greatly disappointed hearts, they returned to their respective homes. Being greatly disturbed by the absence of Krishna, they simply thought all day and night about his pastimes and thus derived some consolation. The Lord, accompanied by Akura and Balaram, traveled in the chariot with great speed toward the bank of the Jamuna. Simply by t taking a bath in the Jamuna, anyone can diminish the reactions of his sinful activities. Krishna Balaram took their baths in the river and washed their faces. After drinking the transparent crystal clear water of the Jamuna, they took their seats again on the chariot. The chariot was standing underneath the shade of big trees, and the two brothers sat down there. Akura then took their permission to also take a bath in the Jamuna. According to Vedic ritual, after taking a bath in a river, one should stand at least half submerged and murmur the Gayatri mantra. While he was standing in the river, Akura suddenly saw Balaram and Krishna within the water. He was surprised to see them there because he was confident that they were sitting on the chariot. Confused, he immediately came out of the water and went to see where the boys were, and he was very much surprised to see that they were sitting on the chariot as before. When he saw them on the chariot, he began to wonder whether he had mistakenly seen them in the water. He therefore went back to the river. This time he saw not only Balaram and Krishna, but many of the demigods and all the siddhas, charnas, and gandharvas. They were all bowing down before the Lord. He also saw Lord Sheshanaga with thousands of hoods. Lord Sheshanaga was covered with bluish garments, and his necks were all white. The white necks of Sheshanaga appeared exactly like snow-capped mountains. On the coiled lap of Sheshanaga, Krishna was sitting very soberly with four hands. His eyes were like the reddish petals of the lotus flower. In other words, after returning to the Jamuna, Akura saw Balaram turned into Sheshanaga and Krishna turned into Mahavishnu. He saw the four-handed Supreme Personality of Godhead smiling very beautifully. The Lord was very pleasing to all and was looking toward everyone with a merciful glance. He appeared beautiful with his raised nose, broad forehead, attractive ears, and reddish lips. His arms, reaching to the knees, were very strongly built. His shoulders were high, his chest was very broad, and his neck was shaped like a conch shell. His navel was very deep, and his abdomen was marked with three lines. His hips were broad and big, 
resembling those of a woman, and his thighs resembled the trunks of elephants. The other parts of his legs, the joints and lower extremities, were all very beautiful. The nails of his feet were dazzling, and his toes were as beautiful as the petals of a lotus flower. His helmet was decorated with very valuable jewels. There was a nice belt around his waist, and he wore a sacred thread across his broad chest. Bangles were on his hands, and armlets on the upper portion of his arms. He wore bells on his ankles. He possessed dazzling beauty, and his palms were like lotus flowers. He was further beautified by the different emblems of the Vishnu Murti, the conch shell, club, disc, and lotus flower, which he held in his four hands. His chest was marked with, a particular, with the particular signs of Vishnu, and he wore fresh garland, flower garlands. All in all, he was very beautiful to look at. Akura also saw his lordship surrounded by intimate associates like the four Kumaras, Sanaka, Sanatana, Sananda, and Sanat Kumara, and other associates like Sunanda and Nanda, as well as demigods like Brahma and Lord Shiva. The nine great learned sages were there, and also devotees like Prahlad and Narada and the eight Vasus. All were engaged in offering prayers to the Lord with clean hearts and pure words. After seeing the transcendental personality of Godhead, Akura immediately became overwhelmed with joy and great devotion, and all over his body there was transcendental shivering. Although, for the moment, he was bewildered, he retained his clear consciousness and bowed down his head before the Lord. With folded hands and faltering voice, he began to offer prayers to the Lord. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 39th chapter of Krishna, Akura's return journey and his vision of Vishnu Loka within the Jamuna River. Starting to get it. Chapter 40 <clears throat> Prayers by Akrura. <clears throat> Akrura offered his prayers as follows My dear Lord, I offer my respectful obeisances unto you because you are the supreme cause of all causes and the original, inexhaustible personality. Narayana. From your navel, a lotus flower grows, and from that lotus, Brahma, the creator of this universe, is born. Since Brahma is the cause of this universe, you are the cause of all causes. The elements of this cosmic manifestation, earth, water, fire, air, ether, ego, and, and, the, ele um, and the total material energy, as well as nature, the marginal energy, the living entities, the mind, the senses, the sense objects, and the demigods who control the affairs of the cosmos, all are produced from your body. You are the super-soul of everything, but no one knows your transcendental form. 
Everyone within this material world is influenced by the modes of material nature. Even demigods, like Lord Brahma, being covered by the influence of material nature, do not exactly know your transcendental existence beyond the cosmic manifestation of the three modes of material nature. Great sages and mystics worship you as the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the original cause of all living entities, all cosmic manifestation, and all demigods. They worship you as all-inclusive. Some of the learned brahmanas also worship you by observing Vedic ritualistic ceremonies. They offer different kinds of sacrifices in the names of different gods. And there are others also who are fond of worshiping transcendental knowledge. They are very peaceful, and after giving up all kinds of material activities, they engage in the sacrifice known as jnana yagya, the philosophical search for you. There are also devotees known as bhagavatas, who worship you as the supreme personality of Godhead. After being properly initiated in the method of pancharatra, they decorate their bodies with tilak and engage in worshipping your different forms of Vishnu Murti. There are others also, known as Shaivites, followers of different Acharyas, who worship you in the form of Lord Shiva. It is stated in the Bhagavad Gita that worship of demigods is also indirectly worship of the Supreme Lord. But such worship is not orthodox, because the worshipable Lord is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana. Demigods like Brahma, demigods such as Brahma and Shiva, are incarnations of the material qualities, which are also emanations from the body of Narayana. Actually, there was no one existing. Actually, there was no one existing before the creation except Narayana, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The worship of a demigod is not on the same level as worship of Narayana. Akura said, Although the minds of those who are devotees of the demigods are fixed on a particular demigod, because you are the super-soul of all living entities, including the demigods, worship the, de the worship of the demigods indirectly goes to you. Sometimes, after flowing down from the mountains during the rainy season, small rivers fail to reach the sea. Some reach the sea, and some do not. Similarly, the worshippers of the demigods may or may not reach you. There is no guarantee. Their success depends on the strength of their worship. According to the Vedic principles, when a worshipper worships a particular demigod, he also conducts some rituals for Narayan, Yagneshvara. For, as it is mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, the demigods cannot fulfill the desires of their worshippers without the sanction of Narayana or Krishna. The exact words used in the Bhagavad Gita are Mayaiva Vihitan Hitan, which means that the demigods can award some benediction after being authorized by the Supreme Lord. When a demigod worshiper comes to his senses, 
He can reason as follows. The demigods can offer benedictions only after being empowered by the Supreme Lord, so why not worship the Supreme Lord directly? Such a worshiper of the demigods may come to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, but others who take the demigods as all in all cannot reach the ultimate goal. Akura continued to pray, My dear Lord, the whole world is filled with the three material modes of nature, namely goodness, passion, and ignorance. Everyone within this material world is covered by these modes, from Lord Brahma down to the non-moving plants and trees. My dear Lord, I offer my respectful obeisances unto you, because you are beyond the influence of the three modes. Except for you, everyone is being carried away by the waves of these modes. My dear Lord, fire is your mouth, the earth is your feet, the sun is your eye, the sky is your navel, and the directions are your ears. Space is your head, the demigods are your arms, the oceans and seas are your abdomen, and the winds and air are your strength and vitality. All the planets and herbs are the hairs on your body. The clouds are the hair on your head. The mountains are your bones and nails. The days and nights are the blinking of your eyelids. Prajapati, the progenitor, is your genitals, and the rains are your semen. When I was distributing books in Denver Airport once, we had the second candle of the Srimad Bhagavatam. <laughs> and uh, it had the... Uh, anatomically correct um, version of the universal form, including the last description. And some cowboy came back with a Bhagavatam. We just distributed whatever uh, canto was available. They just, we'd stay at the airport, they'd bring them out, we distribute them. And uh, so second canto, he comes back, and I saw he, has, he had his finger in the book, like marking this, the, the page. And he goes, give me my money back. <laughs> I said, why? What's wrong? He said, just give me my money back. <laughs> he wasn't messing around, so I just said, all right, here's your money back. And then uh, he handed me the book with it in that section, and he just walked away. And it was the description of the universal form, just as we had heard here. You know, the Prajapati, uh, he's, he's a Prajapati is your genitals, and the reins are your semen, and stuff like that. And... Uh, I stood there for a while thinking, you know, why he was so upset. And it's such an abrupt kind of description for people who have never heard that God is a person. What to speak of that, you know, he's the origin of all the different body parts that we have. And that actually he has a life. Uh, only we have life because he has life. But everyone thinks that there's the center of the universe and they're envious of others, and they're ultimately envious of God. So when they hear he has a personal form, it's repugnant to them. And therefore, give him my money back. <laughs> my dear Lord, all living entities, including different grades of demigods and different grades of overlords, kings, and other living entities are resting in you as parts and parcels of the big unit. One cannot know you by experimental knowledge. One can simply understand your transcendental existence to be like the great ocean in which different grades of living entities are included or like the undumbra fruit. Which kind of fruit? Undumbra. Say it three times. Undumbra. 
Yeah, it's just like the undumbra fruit. Out of which small mosquitoes come. My dear Lord, whatever eternal forms and incarnations you accept, <laughs> you accept when you appear in this world are meant for relieving the living entities of their ignorance, illusion, and lamentation. All people, therefore, can appreciate the incarnations and pastimes of your Lordship and eternally glorify your activities. No one can estimate how many forms and incarnations you have, nor can anyone estimate the number of universes that are existing within you. Let me, therefore, offer my respectful obeisances unto the fish incarnation who appeared in the ocean of devastation, although your lordship is the cause of all causes. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto the Hayagriva incarnation who killed the two demons, Madhu and Kaitaba. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you who appeared as the gigantic tortoise that held up the great mountain Mandara and who appeared as the boar that rescued the earth planet which had fallen into the water of the Garbhodaka. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto your lordship who appeared as Nishingadev to deliver all kinds of devotees from the fearful condition of atheistic atrocities. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you, who appeared as Vamanadev and covered the three worlds simply by extending your lotus foot feet. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you, who appeared as the Lord of the Brigus in order to kill all the infidel administrators of the world. And let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you, who appeared as Lord Rama, to kill demons like Ravana. You are worshipped by all devotees as the chief of the Raghu dynasty, Lord Ramachandra. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you, who appear as Lord Vasudev, Lord Sankarsana, Lord Padumna, and Lord Aniruta. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you, who appear as Lord Buddha, bewilder the atheistic and demoniac. And let me offer my respectful obeisances unto you who appear as Kulki to chastise the so-called royal order degraded to the abominable condition of the Mleches who are below the jurisdiction of Vedic regulative principles. My dear Lord, everyone within this material world is conditioned by your illusory energy. Under the impression of, fa of false identification and false possession, everyone is transmigrating from one body to another on the path of fruit of activities and their reactions. See? Like you get pulled over and then what did I do, officer? You're under the impression of false identification and false possession. <laughs> it's a crime in the state of West Virginia. I am falsely thinking myself happy in possessing my home, wife, children, estate, property, and friends. In this way, I'm acting as if in a dreamland because none of these are permanent. I am a fool to be always absorbed in thoughts of such things, accepting them as permanent truths. My dear Lord, due to my false identification, I have accepted as permanent everything which is non-permanent, such as this material body, which is not spiritual and is the source of all kinds of miserable conditions. Being bewildered by such concepts of life, I'm always absorbed in thoughts of duality, and I've forgotten you, who are the reservoir of all transcendental pleasure. I'm bereft of your transcendental association, being just like a foolish creature who leaves a water hole 
covered by water-nourished vegetation and goes in search of water in the desert. The conditioned souls want to quench their thirst, but they do not know where to find water. They give up the spot where there is actually a reservoir of water and run into the desert where there is no water. My dear Lord, I am completely incapable of controlling my mind, which is now driven by the unbridled senses and is attracted by fruit of activities and their results. Therefore, my intelligence is very miserly. My dear Lord, your lotus feet cannot be appreciated by any person in the conditioned stage of material existence. But somehow or other, I have come near your lotus feet, and I consider this to be your causeless mercy upon me. You can act in any way because you are the supreme controller. I can thus understand that when a person becomes eligible to be delivered from the path of repeated birth and death, it is only by your causeless mercy that he comes nearer to your lotus feet and becomes attached to your devotional service. And Akrura fell down before the Lord and said, My dear Lord, your transcendental eternal form is full of knowledge. Simply by concentrating one's mind upon your form, <clears throat> one can understand in full knowledge everything that be, because you are the original source of all knowledge. You are the supreme powerful, possessing all kinds of energies. You are the supreme Brahman, and the supreme person, supreme controller and master of the material energies. I offer my respectful obeisances unto you because you are Vasudeva, the resting place of all creation. You are the all-pervading supreme personality of Godhead, and you are also the supreme soul residing in everyone's heart and giving direction to act. Now, my Lord, I am completely surrendered unto you. Please, give me your protection. Thus, Andy, but you tricked me. But you tricked me. Oh, yeah, you did. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 40th chapter of Krishna, prayers by Vaishishikar Prabhu. I mean, prayers by Akrura. Chapter 41, Krishna Enters Mathura. While Akura was offering his prayers to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the Lord disappeared from the water exactly as an expert dramatic actor changes his dress and assumes his original feature. After the Vishnumurti disappeared, Akura got out of the water. Finishing the rest of his ritualistic performance, he went near the chariot of Balaram and Krishna, and was struck with wonder. Krishna asked whether he had seen something wonderful within the water or in space. Akura said, My dear Lord, all wonderful things that are happening within this world, either in the sky or in the water or on the land, are factually appearing in your universal form. So when I have seen you, what wonderful things have I not seen? This statement confirms the Vedic version that one who knows Krishna knows everything 
and that one who has seen Krishna has seen everything, regardless of how wonderful a thing may be. My dear Lord, Akura continued, there cannot be anything more wonderful than your transcendental form. When I have seen your transcendental form, what is there left to see? After saying this, Akura immediately started driving the chariot, and by the end of the day, they reached the precincts of Mathura. As they rode from Vrindavan to Mathura, all the passers-by along the way who saw Krishna and Balaram could not help but look at them again and again. In the meantime, the other inhabitants of Vrindavan, headed by Nanda and Upananda, had already reached Mathura by going through the forest, and they were awaiting the arrival of Krishna and Balaram in a garden. Upon reaching the entrance to Mathura, Krishna and Balaram got down from the chariot and shook hands with Akrura. Krishna informed him, You may go home now because we shall enter Mathura later, along with our associates. Akura replied, My dear Lord, I cannot go to Mathura alone, leaving you aside. I am your surrendered servant. Please do not try to avoid me. Please come along with me, with your elder brother and cowherd boyfriends, and sanctify my house. My dear Lord, if you come, my home will be sanctified by the dust of your lotus feet. The water emanating from the perspiration of your lotus feet, namely the Ganges, purifies everyone, including the forefathers, the fire god, and all other demigods. Bali Maharaj has become famous simply by washing your lotus feet, and he enjoyed all material opulences and later on was elevated to the highest position of liberation. The Ganges water not only sanctifies the three worlds, but is carried on the head of Lord Shiva. The ancestors of Bhagirata, sanctified by this water, achieved the heavenly planets. O Supreme Lord of Lords, O Master of the Universe, one can achieve piety simply by hearing about your transcendental pastimes. O Supreme Narayan, who are praised with select verses, I offer my respectful obeisances. The Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna replied, Akrura, I shall surely come to your home with my elder brother Balarama, but only after killing all the demons who are envious of the Yadu dynasty. In this way I shall please all my relatives. Akrura became a little disappointed by these words of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, but he could not disregard the order. He therefore entered Mathura and informed Kangsa about the arrival of Krishna, and then he entered his own home. After Akrura's departure, Lord Krishna, Balarama, and the cowherd boys entered Mathura to see the city. They observed that the gate of Mathura was made of first-class marble, very well constructed, and that the doors were made of pure gold. There were gorgeous orchards and gardens all around, and the whole city was encircled by canals so that no enemy <coughs> could enter very easily. <coughs> they saw that all the crossroads were decorated with gold and that there were copper and brass storehouses for stocking grain and that there were many rich men's houses, all appearing symmetrical, as if constructed by one engineer. The houses were decorated with costly jewels, and each and every house had nice compounds 
of trees bearing fruits and flowers. The corridors and verandas of the houses were decorated with silk cloth and embroidery work in jewels and pearls. In front of the balcony windows were pigeons and peacocks walking and cooing. All the grain dealers' shops within the city were decorated with different kinds of flowers and garlands, newly grown grass and pleasing flowers like narcissus and roses. The entrance doors of the houses were decorated with water pots filled with water. A mixture of water, yogurt, sandalwood pulp and flowers was, was sprinkled all around the doors which were also decorated with burning lamps of different sizes. <clears throat> Over all the doors were decorations of fresh mango leaves and silk festoons. When the news spread that Krishna, Balaram and the cowherd boys were within Mathura city, all the inhabitants gathered and the ladies and girls immediately went up to the roofs of the houses to see them. They had been awaiting the arrival of Krishna and Balaram with great anxiety and in their extreme eagerness to see Krishna and Balaram, the ladies did not dress themselves very properly. Some of them placed their clothes in the wrong place. Some anointed their eyes on one side only and some wore ankle bells only on one leg or wore only one earring. Thus in great haste, not even decorated properly, they went to see Krishna from the roofs. Some of them had been taking their lunch, but as soon as they heard that Krishna and Balaram were in the city, they left their eating and ran to the roofs. Some of them were in the bathroom taking their baths, but without properly finishing their baths, they went to see Krishna and Balaram. Some were engaged in feeding their children breast milk, but they put their babies aside and went to see Krishna and Balaram. Passing by very slowly and smiling, Lord Krishna immediately stole their hearts. He who is the husband of the goddess of fortune passed through the street like an elephant. For a very long time, the women of Mathura had heard about Krishna and Balaram and their uncommon characteristics, and they were very much attracted and eager to see them. Now, now, when they actually saw Krishna and Balaram passing on the street and saw them sweetly smiling, the lady's joy reached the point of ecstasy. <clears throat> when they actually saw them with their eyes, they took Krishna and Balaram within their hearts and began to embrace them to their fullest desire. Their bodily hairs stood up in ecstasy. They had heard of Krishna but they had never seen him, and now their longing was relieved. After going, up to the, to, um, after going up on the roofs of the palaces of Mathura, the ladies, their faces joyful, began to shower flowers upon Krishna and Balaram. When the brothers were passing through the streets, all the brahmanas in the, in the neighborhood went out with sandal water and flowers and respectfully welcomed them to the city. All the residents of Mathura began to talk among themselves about the elevated and pious activities of the people of Brindavan. The residents of Mathura 
were surprised that the pious activities the cowherd men in Vrindavan must have performed in their previous lives to be able to see Krishna in Balaram daily as cowherd boys. While Krishna and Balaram were passing in this way, they saw a washerman in, in dire of clothing. Krishna was pleased to ask him for some nice clothing. He also promised that if the washerman would deliver the nicest dyed cloth to him, the washerman would become very happy and all good fortune would be his. Krishna was not a beggar, nor was he in need of clothing. But by his, this request, he indicated that everyone should be ready to offer Krishna whatever he wants. That is the meaning of Krishna consciousness. He indicated that everyone should be ready to offer Krishna whatever he wants. That is the meaning of Krishna consciousness. Unfortunately, this washerman was a servant of Kangsa and therefore could not appreciate the demand of Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is the effect of bad association. He could have immediately delivered the clothing to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who promised him all good fortune. But being a servant of Kangsa, the sinful demon could not accept the offer. Instead of being pleased, he was very angry and refused the Lord's request, saying, How is it that you are asking for clothing which is meant for the king? The washerman then began to instruct Krishna and Balaram, My dear boys, in the future, don't be so impudent as to ask for things which belong to the king. Otherwise, you will be punished by the government men. They will arrest you and punish you, and you will be in difficulty. I have practical experience of this fact. Anyone who unlawfully wants to use the king's property is very severely punished. On hearing this, Lord Krishna, the son of Devaki, became very angry at the washerman, and striking him with the upper portion of his hand, he separated the man's head from his body. <laughs> the washerman fell down dead on the ground. In this way, Lord Krishna confirmed, confirmed the statement of the Brahma Sangita that every limb of his body is capable of doing everything he likes. Without a sword, but simply with his hand, he cut off the head of the washerman. This is proof that the Supreme Lord is omnipotent. <clears throat> if he wants to do something, he can do it without extraneous help. After this ghastly incident, the employees of the washerman immediately dispersed, leaving the clothing. Christian Balaram took possession of it and dressed according to their choice. The rest of the clothes were offered to the coward boys, who also used them as they desired. What they did not use remained there. Krishna and Balaram and the boys then proceeded along the main road. In the meantime, a devotee tailor 
took the opportunity of service and prepared some nice clothes from the cloth for Krishna and Balaram. Thus, being very nicely attired, Krishna and Balaram looked like elephants dressed with colored clothing on the full moon day or the dark moon day. Yeah, full moon day or the dark moon day. <clears throat> Krishna was very much pleased with the... Yeah, I mean, not, not, the moon is there, but you can't see it. If it's a full moon, if it's a dark... Both. No, I'll, I'll say it again. Thus, being very nicely attired, Krishna and Balaram looked like elephants dressed with colored clothing on the full moon day or the dark moon day. Could be that, or it could be that whether it's dark moon or they look beautiful, whatever they go and whatever time. Poetic. <clears throat> Krishna was very much pleased with the tailor. <coughs> Excuse me. And gave him the benediction of Sarupya Mukti, which means that after leaving his body, he would be liberated and would attain a four-handed body exactly like that of Narayana in the Vaikuntha planets. Krishna also granted him that as long as he would live, he would earn sufficient opulence to be able to enjoy sense gratification. By this incident, Krishna proved that those who are Krishna conscious devotees will not be lacking material enjoyment of sense gratification. They will have sufficient opportunity for such things. But after leaving this body, they will be allowed to enter the spiritual planets of Vaikuntha Loka or Krishna Loka, Goloka Vrindavan. After dressing nicely, Krishna Balaram went to a florist of the name Sudama. As soon as they reached the precinct of his house, the florist immediately came out and with great devotion fell down on his face to offer his respectful obeisances. He offered a nice seat to Krishna and Balaram and asked his assistant to bring out flowers, betel nuts, and pulp of chandan. The florist's welcome greatly satisfied the Lord. The florist very humbly and submissively offered his prayers to the Lord, saying, My dear Lord, because you have come to my place, I think all my forefathers and all my worshipable superiors are pleased and delivered. My dear Lord, you are the supreme cause of all causes of this cosmic manifestation. But for the benefit of the residents of this earthly planet, you have appeared with your plenary portion to give protection to your devotees and annihilate the demons. You are equally disposed as the friend of all living entities. You are the super soul, and you do not discriminate between friend and enemy. Yet you are pleased to give your devotees the special result of their devotional activities. My Lord, I am praying that you please tell me whatever you wish me to do, because I am your eternal servant. If you, if you would order me to do something, it would be a great favor to me. The florist, Sudama, was greatly pleased within his heart by seeing Krishna and Balaram in his place. And thus, his, as his choicest desire, he made two exquisite garlands 
the various flowers and presented them to the Lord. Krishna and Balaram were very much pleased with his sincere service. And Krishna offered the florist his salutation and benedictions, which he is always prepared to bestow upon the surrendered souls. When the florist was offered benedictions, he begged from the Lord that he might remain his eternal servant in devotional service and by such service do good to all living creatures. By this, it is clear that a devotee of the Lord in Krishna consciousness should not be satisfied simply by his own advancement in devotional service. He must be willing to work for the welfare of all others. This example was followed by the six Goswamis of Vrindavan. It is therefore stated in the prayer about them, Lokanam Hitakarinao. Vaishnavas, or devotees of the Lord, are not selfish. Whatever benefits they derive from the Supreme Personality of Godhead as benedictions, they want to distribute to all other persons. That is the greatest of all humanitarian activities. Being satisfied with the florist, Lord Krishna not only gave him whatever benedictions he wanted, but over and above that, he offered him all material opulences, family prosperity, a long duration of life, and whatever else his heart desired within the material world. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 41st chapter of Krishna. Krishna enters Mathura. The imagery in this last chapter is really beautiful. Here's from the translation and some of Vishwana Chakravarti Thakur's commentary back when the full moon, I didn't find it anywhere in the commentary. Prabhupada just sounds like he put that in there. Krishna and Balaram looked resplendent, each in his own unique, wonderfully ornamented outfit. They resembled a pair of young elephants, one white and the other black, decorated for a festive occasion. Vishwanath, Krishna and Balaram were decorated with cloth suitable for their different colored bodies. They appeared like young processional elephants, one white and the other black at a festival. And um, I've always appreciated this second to the last verse in this chapter. When Krishna offers benedictions, this verse says, Sopi vavere chalam bhaktim tasmin eva kilatmani tad bhakteshu chusaurardam bhuteshu cha dayamparam. Dayamparam. Sudama chose unshakable devotion for Krishna, the supreme soul of all existence, friendship with his devotees, and transcendental compassion for all living beings. What are the three things? Unshakable devotion for Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, friendship with his devotees, and transcendental compassion for all living entities. Isn't that a nice verse? Very nice. That's what he chose. Very nice. Not only did Lord Krishna grant Sudama these benedictions, but he also awarded him strength, long life, fame, beauty, and ever-increasing prosperity for his family. Then Krishna and his elder brother took their leave. Just like that. 
uh, Vishwanath Chakravarti. Krishna gave the garland makers strength, power, wealth, and beauty, though he did not desire them. This was a response to his enthusiastic desire to serve Krishna and Balaram. Thus, we understand in all cases, Krishna is most affectionate to his devotees. You might want to wait for the um, microphone because the devotees online would like to hear what you have to say. They can only hear through the microphones. Well, this is uh, actually a bit of speculation, but um, I was just considering the thought that perhaps the uh, dark full moon and the, the full moon were representations of Krishna and Balaram themselves. Yep, we did consider that. On a sidebar, we had... And thank you for for contributing that. It's a good good observation. Prabhu? Yeah. Otherwise, as you know, it doesn't count. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So, um, Krishna has the most mercy on his devotees in this world. And this we know... Uh, but how do we as devotees have transcendental compassion for all living entities? How, how, how do we develop that? Well, one way is by going through life and comparing your own trials and tribulations to others in the world. And I say that by thinking of two verses. One is, Vidyam chavidyam chayas tadvedo bayam saha only one who can learn the process of transcendental knowledge and that of nations side by side can transcend the influence of repeated birth and death and enjoy the full blessings of immortality, says Mantra 11 in the Sri Shapanishad. There's an implication there that one develops mature devotion by living one's life in relationship to Krishna and naturally there will be friction because of us being incompatible with the material energy, but by always seeking Krishna conscious solutions, then we s develop a kind of compassion for others who are going through the similar kind of trials and tribulations, but they don't have vidyam, they don't have real knowledge. And then the second verse is from Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita 6th chapter, so Krishna says the supreme yogi, Parama yogi, is the one who's atma pamyena. He has, um, he sees how other people are going through various sufferings, and he can relate to that because he's been through it himself. Atma pamyena sarvatra samam pashiti orjuna. Sukham vayari means then their happiness and their distress. He sees that they're being manipulated by the modes of material nature, and therefore he has empathy and and compassion. So, if and and it's also natural that if one comes to the transcendental platform, as Krishna says in the Gita, 18 chapter. Brahmabhuta prasanatma nashochati nakankshati samak sarveshu bhuteshu madbhaktim labhate param. When one comes into the realm of the spiritual, then 
naturally, he sees all living entities equally. He's relating to them and as spiritual souls, and therefore compassion is there. And, and, and the implication is that he's no longer envious of them because he's not seeing in relationship to the bodily conception of life, which Krishna described earlier in the seventh chapter of the Gita, when he said, Icha dvesha samutena dvanva mohena bharata sarva bhutani samoham sargeyanti parantapa. That everyone who's born into the material world has this desire and hatred because on the material platform, one naturally has this hankering and lamentation and also sees living in beings uh, from the material point of view and therefore either hates them or is desirous of trying to lord it over them. But if someone comes to the Brahmaputta platform, then it's natural to see them equally and to have compassion. I think that a direct answer to your question as to how to do that is to please Krishna the most. And if you study the last seven verses of the 12th chapter, in the, at the end of each one of those verses, Krishna says, I'm very happy with this devotee. This devotee pleases me He pleases me more. And at, at the end, pleases me very, very much. And it, in those qualities, it describes how he, the, the devotee is the friend of all living entities. He never, and he always tries to help relieve them of their, he's always equipoised in happiness and distress, and he sees all living beings equally and tries to do sarvaputa, hite rataha, tries to do them good, something good for them. That pleases Krishna. So if you want to please Krishna, that's the key. If you develop the desire to please Krishna very strongly, then when you read these verses, you will automatically want to do that. And your 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 behavior and your vision to others will change in that way. I think that Davina Nirda Prabhu is one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. So, so I'd like to ask him how it is that he develops a sense of compassion for other living beings. If you could comment. I have no idea. <laughs> I just I just hang out with guys like you <laughs> and somehow it just rubs off you know I just realized that we can only grow by giving so we're here because some Vaishnavas were dropping nectar on our heads you can feel that little dint there on your head you, you all put your head up hand up your head you feel that little dint where the nectar yeah. is dropping continuously and that's the reason why we're here, because Papa was showering nectar on us through his books and his devotees. And because somebody is compassionate on us, so as a little token of appreciation, of gratitude, we try, we should try to extend ourselves a little bit every day. You know, like you want to grow, so you have to stretch a little bit, get into the stretch zone. And yeah, we can sit down and just take care of ourselves, take care of business, or we can stretch a little bit and take care of others. Take on of, of love that we have inherited from from Prabhupada and our previous acharyas, who stretched quite a bit to to share their their 
organization and their gift to each one of us. So I feel Govardhan, this is a good place for getting into a stretch zone and and expanding our capacity for forgiving. And we'll realize that the more we try for that, the more our capacity for appreciating and relishing and for imbibing will grow because Krishna will give you more because you're not greedy, just like this washerman. No, the florist, the washerman got... He got <laughs> eliminated, <laughs> right? But the florist, <laughs> the florist was very was very generous, so Krishna gave him unlimitedly. He was so enthusiastic to serve Krishna Balaram. Thank you, Navina Prabhu. I like that about how getting out of your um, comfort zone into the stretch zone, and how you grow by giving. It's really nice. Thank you. We're, we're now all the way up to chapter 42. This one, this chapter is called The Breaking of the Bow in the Sacrificial Arena. After leaving the florist, everyone ready? Say yes. yes. I'm not convinced. Yes! yes. <laughs> After leaving the florist palace, you're like a lion. He's powerful like a lion. <laughs> He's ready to pounce at any second. After leaving the florist place, Krishna Balaram saw a hunched-back young woman carrying a dish of sandalwood pulp through the streets. A dish. Okay, here we go again. This is a very, very important chapter. After leaving the florist place, Krishna and Balaram saw a hunched-back young woman carrying a dish of sandwood pulp through the streets. Since Krishna is a reservoir of all pleasure, he wanted to make all his companions joyous by cutting a joke with the hunched-backed woman. Krishna addressed her, O oh, tall young woman, who are you? Tell me, for whom are you carrying this sandwood pulp in your hand? I think you should offer this sandwood pulp to me. And if you do so, I am sure you will be fortunate. Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and he knew everything about the hunchback. By his inquiry, he indicated that there was no use in serving a demon. She would do better to serve Krishna and Balaram and get an immediate result of the service. The woman replied to Krishna, My dear Shamasundara, dear beautiful dark boy, you may know that I am engaged as a maidservant of Kangsa. I am supplying him pulp of sandalwood daily. The king is very much pleased with me for supplying this nice thing. But now I see there's no one who can better be served by this pulp of sandalwood than you two brothers. Being captivated by the beautiful features of Krishna and Balaram, their talking, their smiling, their glancing, and their other activities, the hunched-backed woman began to smear all the pulp of sandalwood over their bodies with great satisfaction and devotion. The two transcendental brothers, Krishna and Balaram, were naturally beautiful and had beautiful complexions, and they were nicely dressed in colorful garments. The upper portions of their bodies were already very attractive, and when the hunched-backed woman smeared their bodies with sandalwood pulp, they looked even more beautiful. 
Krishna was very much pleased by this service and he began to consider how to reward her. In other words, in order to draw the attention of the Lord, the Krishna conscious devotee has to serve him in great love and devotion. Krishna cannot be pleased by any action other than the transcendental loving service unto him. Thinking like this, Lord Krishna pressed the feet of the hunched-backed woman with his toes and, capturing her cheeks with his fingers, gave her a jerk in order to make her straight. At once the hunched-backed woman became a beautiful straight girl with broad hips, thin waist, and very nice well-shaped breasts. Since Krishna was pleased with the service of the hunched-backed woman, and since she was touched by Krishna's hands, she became the most beautiful girl among women. This incident shows that by serving Krishna, the devotee immediately becomes elevated to the most exalted position in all respects. Devotional service is so potent that anyone who takes it to become devotional service is so potent that anyone who takes to it becomes qualified with all godly qualities. Krishna was attracted to the hunched back woman not for her beauty, but for her service. As soon as she rendered service, she immediately became the most beautiful woman. A Krishna conscious person does not have to be qualified or beautiful. After becoming Krishna conscious and rendering service unto Krishna, he becomes very much qualified and beautiful. When the woman was turned by Krishna's favor into an exquisitely beautiful young girl, she naturally felt very much obliged to Krishna, and she was also attracted by his beauty. Without hesitation, she caught the rear part of his cloth and began to pull it. She smiled flirtatiously and admitted that she was agitated by lusty desires. She forgot that she was on the street and before the elder brother of Krishna and his friends. She frankly proposed to Krishna, My dear hero, I cannot leave you in this way. You must come to my place. I am already very much attracted to your beauty, so I must receive you well, and since you are the best among males, you must also be very kind upon me. In plain words, she proposed that Krishna come to her home and satisfy her lusty desires. Krishna, of course, felt a little embarrassed in front of his elder brother, Balaram, but he knew that the girl was simple and attracted. Therefore, he simply smiled at her words. Looking toward his cowherd boyfriends, he replied to the girl, My dear beautiful girl, I am very much pleased by your invitation, and I must come to your home after finishing my other business here. Such a beautiful girl as you are the only means of solace for persons like us who are away from home and not married. Certainly a suitable girlfriend like you can give us relief from all kinds of mental agitation. Krishna satisfied the girl in this way with sweet words. Leaving her there, he proceeded down the street of the marketplace where the citizens were prepared to receive him with various kinds of presentations, especially betel nuts, flowers, and sandalwood pulp. The mercantile men in the market worshipped Krishna Balaram with great respect. When Krishna was passing through the street, all the women in the surrounding houses came to see him, and some of the younger ones almost fainted, being captivated by his beauty. Their hair and tight clothing loosened, and they forgot where they were standing. Krishna next inquired from the citizens as to the location of the place of sacrifice. Kamsa had arranged for the sacrifice called Tanur Yagya, 
and to designate this particular sacrifice, he had placed a big bow near the sacrificial altar. The bow was very big and wonderful and resembled a rainbow in the sky. Within the sacrificial arena, this bow was protected by many constables and watchmen engaged by King Kamsa. As Krishna and Balaram approached the bow, they were warned not to go nearer. But Krishna ignored this warning. He forcibly went up and immediately took the bow in his left hand. After stringing, they were warned not to go nearer, but Krishna ignored this warning. He forcibly went up and immediately took the big bow in his left hand. After stringing the bow in the presence of the crowd, he drew it and broke it at the middle into two parts, exactly as an elephant breaks sugarcane in the field. Everyone present appreciated Krishna's power. The sound of the bow cracking filled both sky and land and was heard by Kamsa. When Kamsa heard what had happened, he began to fear for his life. The caretakers of the bow, who were standing by, standing by watching, became very angry, and with their respective weapons in hand, they rushed toward Krishna, shouting, Arrest him! Arrest him! Kill him! Kill him! Krishna and Balaram were surrounded. When they understood the sinister motives of the guards, they became angry, and taking up the two pieces of the broken bow, they began to beat down all of Kamsa's caretakers. While this turmoil was going on, Kamsa sent a small group of troops to assist the caretakers, but Krishna and Balaram fought with them also and killed them. After this, Krishna did not proceed further into the sacrificial arena, but went out the gate and proceeded toward the resting camp, toward their resting camp. Along the way, he visited various places in Mathura city with great delight. Seeing the activities and wonderful prowess of Krishna, all the citizens of Mathura began to consider the two brothers to be demigods who had come down to Mathura, and they all looked upon them with great astonishment. The two brothers strolled carefree in the street, not caring for the law and order of Kamsa. At suns as sunset approached, Krishna and Balaram and their cowherd boyfriends went to the outskirts of the city where all their carts were assembled. Thus Krishna and Balaram gave some preliminary hints of their arrival to Kamsa, and he could understand what severe type of danger was awaiting him the next day in the sacrificial arena. When Krishna and Balaram had been going from Vrindavan to Mathura, the inhabitants of Vrindavan had imagined the great fortune of the citizens of Mathura in being able to see the wonderful beauty of Krishna, who is worshipped by his pure devotees as well as the goddess of fortune. The fantasies of the residents of Vrindavan were now actually realized, for the citizens of Mathura became fully satisfied by seeing Krishna. When Krishna returned to his camp, he was taken care of by servants who washed his lotus feet, gave him a nice seat, and offered him milk and palatable dishes. After taking supper and, drink and thinking of the next day's program, he very peacefully took rest. Thus he passed the night there. On the other side, when Kangsa came to understand, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. On the other side, 
when Kangsa came to understand about the breaking of his wonderful bow and the killing of the caretakers and soldiers by Krishna, <clears throat> he could partially realize the power of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Excuse me. <clears throat> he could realize that the eighth son of Devaki had appeared and that now his death was imminent. Thinking of his imminent death, he was restless the entire night. He began to have many inauspicious visions, and he could understand that Krishna and Balaram, who had approached the precincts of this city of the city, were his messengers of death. Kangsa saw various kinds of inauspicious signs while both awake <coughs> and dreaming. When he looked <clears throat> when he looked in the mirror, he could not see his head, although the head was actually present. He saw the luminaries in the sky in double, although there was only one set, factually. He began to see holes in his shadow, and he heard a high buzzing sound within his ears. All the trees before him appeared to be made of gold, and he could not see his own footprints in dust or muddy clay. In dreams, he saw various kinds of ghosts being carried in a carriage drawn by donkeys. <clears throat> he also dreamed that someone had given him poison and he was drinking it. He dreamed also that he was going naked with a garland of flowers and he was smearing oil all over his body. Thus, as Kongsa saw various signs of death both, while both awake and sleeping, he could understand that death was certain. And thus, in great anxiety, he could not rest that night. Just after the night expired, he busily arranged for the wrestling match. The wrestling arena was nicely cleansed and decorated with flags, festoons, and flowers, and the match was announced by the beating of kettle drums. The platform appeared very beautiful due to streamers and flags. Different types of galleries were arranged for respectable persons, kings, brahmanas, and chetrias. The various kings had reserved thrones and others had arranged seats also. Kangsa finally arrived, accompanied by various ministers and secretaries, and he sat on the raised platform, especially meant for him. Unfortunately, although he was sitting in the center of all his governing ex executive heads, his heart was palpitating in fear of death. Cruel death evidently does not even care for a person as powerful as Kangsa. When death comes, it does not care for anyone's exalted position. When everything was complete, the wrestlers who were to exhibit their skills before the assembly walked into the arena. They were decorated with nice ornaments and dress. Some of the famous wrestlers were Chanura, Moshtika, Shala, Kuta, and Toshala. Being enlivened by the musical concert, they passed through with great alacrity. All the respectable cowherd men who came from Vrindavan, headed by Nanda, were also welcomed by Kangsa. 
After presenting Kangsa with the milk products they had brought with them, the cowherd men also took their respective seats by the side of the king on a platform especially meant for them. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 42nd chapter of Krishna, the breaking of the bow in the sacrificial arena. Now the chapter you've all been waiting for. The killing of the elephant, Kuvalayapida. Right? After taking their baths and finishing all of their morning duties, Krishna and Balaram could hear the beating of the kettle drums in the wrestling arena. They immediately prepared themselves to proceed to the spot to see the fun. When Krishna and Balaram reached the gate of the wrestling arena, they saw a big elephant of the name Kuvalayapida being tended by a caretaker riding on its head. The caretaker was deliberately blocking their entrance by keeping the elephant in front of the gateway. Krishna could understand the purpose of the caretaker and he prepared himself by tightening his clothes before combating the elephant. He addressed the caretaker in a very grave voice, as resounding as a cloud. You miscreant, caretaker, give way and let me pass through the gate. If you block my way, I shall send you and your elephant to the house of death personified. The caretaker, being insulted by Krishna, became very angry. And in order to challenge Krishna, as was previously planned, he provoked the elephant to attack. The elephant then moved before Krishna like inevitable death. It rushed toward him and tried to catch him with its trunk. But Krishna very dexterously moved behind the elephant. Being able to see only the end, to the end of its trunk, the elephant could not see Krishna hiding behind its legs, but it tried to capture him with its trunk. Krishna again very quickly escaped capture, and he again ran behind the elephant and caught its tail. Holding the elephant by its tail, Krishna began to pull it, and with very great strength, he dragged it for at least 25 yards, just as Garuda drags an insignificant snake. Krishna pulled the elephant from this side to that, from right to left, just as he used to pull a calf by its tail in his childhood. <laughs> After this, Krishna went in front of the elephant and gave it a strong slap. He then slipped away from the elephant's view and ran to its back. Then falling down on the ground, Krishna placed himself in front of the elephant's two legs and caused it to trip and fall. Krishna immediately got up, but the elephant, thinking that he was still lying down, tried to push an ivory tusk through the body of Krishna by forcibly stabbing it into the ground. Although the elephant was harassed and angry, the caretaker riding on its head tried to provoke it further. The elephant then rushed madly toward Krishna. As soon as it came within reach, Krishna caught hold of the trunk and pulled the elephant down. When the elephant and caretaker fell, Krishna jumped up on the elephant, broke off one of its tusks, and with it killed the elephant and the caretaker too. After killing the elephant, Krishna took the ivory tusk on his shoulder, decorated with drops of perspiration and sprinkled with the blood of the elephant. He looked very beautiful. And thus he proceeded toward the wrestling arena. Lord Balaram took the other tusk of the elephant on his shoulder. Accompanied by their cowherd boyfriends, they entered the arena. 
When Krishna entered the wrestling arena with Balaram and their friends, he appeared differently to different people according to their different relationships, rasas, with him. Krishna is the reservoir of all pleasure and all kinds of rasas, both favorable and unfavorable. Krishna is the reservoir of all pleasure and all kinds of rasas, both favorable and unfavorable. He appeared to the wrestlers exactly like a thunderbolt. To the people in general, he appeared as the most beautiful personality. To the females, he appeared to be the most attractive male, Cupid personified, and thus he increased their lust. The cowherd men who were present there looked upon Krishna as their own kinsman, coming from the same village of Vrindavan. The impious Kshatriya kings who were present saw him as the strongest ruler of their chastiser. The impious Kshatriya kings who were present saw him as the strongest ruler and their chastiser. To the parents of Krishna, Nanda and Yashoda, he appeared to be the most loving child. To Kamsa, the king of the Bhoja dynasty, he appeared to be death personified. To the unintelligent, he appeared to be an incapable personality. To the yogis present, he appeared to be the super soul. To the members of the Vishnu dynasty, he appeared to be the most celebrated descendant. Thus appreciated differently by different kinds of people present, Krishna entered the wrestling arena with Balaram and his cowherd boyfriends, having heard that Krishna had already killed the elephant Kuvalaya Kamsa knew beyond doubt that Krishna was formidable. He thus became very much afraid of him. Krishna and Balaram had long arms. They were beautifully dressed and they were attractive to all the people assembled there. They were dressed as if they were going to act on a dramatic stage and they drew the attention of all people. The citizens of Mathura City who saw Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God, had became very much pleased and began to look on his face with insatiable glances as if they were drinking the nectar of heaven. Seeing Krishna gave them so much pleasure that it appeared as if they were not only drinking the nectar of seeing his face, but were also smelling the aroma and licking up the taste of his body and were embracing him and Balaram with their arms. They began to talk among themselves about the two transcendental brothers. For a long time they had heard of the beauty and activities of Krishna and Balaram, but now they were personally seeing them face to face. They thought that Krishna and Balaram were two plenary incarnations of the Supreme Personality of Godhead Narayana, who had appeared in Vrindavan. The citizens of Mathura began to recite Krishna's pastimes, his birth as the son of Vasudev, his being taken into the care of Nanda Maharaj and his wife in Gokula, and all those events leading to his coming to Mathura to favor them. They spoke of the killing of the demon Putana, as well as the killing of Trinavarta, who came as a whirlwind. They also recalled the deliverance of the twin brothers from, the, from within the Yamala Arjuna trees. The citizens of Mathura spoke among themselves. Shankachuda, Keshi, Tenukasura, and many other demons were killed by Krishna and Balaram in Vrindavan. Krishna also saved all the coward men of Vrindavan from a devastating fire. He chastised the Kaliya snake in the water of the Jamuna 
and he curbed the false pride of the heavenly king Indra. Krishna held up the great Govardhan hill in one hand for seven continuous days and saved all the people of Gokula from incessant rain, hurricane, and hailstorm. They also began to remember other enlivening activities. The damsels of Vrindavan were so much pleased by seeing Krishna's beauty and participating in his activities that they forgot the troubles of material existence. By seeing Krishna and thinking of him, they forgot all sorts of fatigue. The Mathura citizens discussed the dynasty of Yadu, saying that because of Krishna's appearance in this dynasty, the Yadus would remain the most celebrated family in the whole universe. The citizens of Mathura then began to talk about Balaram. They spoke of his very beautiful lotus petal eyes, and they remarked of him, This boy has killed the Perlumba demon and many others also. While they were thus talking about the activities of Krishna and Balaram, they heard the vibrations of different bands announcing the wrestling match. The famous wrestler, Chanura, then began to talk with Krishna and Balaram. My dear Krishna and Balaram, he said, we have heard about your past activities. You are, a great, you are great heroes, and therefore the king has called you. We have heard that your arms are very strong. The king and all the people present here desire to see a display of your wrestling abilities. A citizen should be obedient and please the mind of the ruling king. Acting in that way, the citizen, citizen attains all kinds of good fortune. One who does not care to act obediently is made unhappy because of the king's anger. You are a cowherd, you are cowherd boys, and we have heard that while tending your cows in the forest, you enjoy wrestling with each other. We wish therefore you to join with us in wrestling so that all the people present here, including the king, will be pleased. Krishna immediately understood the purpose of Chanura's statements and he prepared to wrestle with him. But according to the time and circumstances, he spoke as follows. You are a subject of the king of the Bojas and, if you, li and you live in the jungle. We are also indirectly his subjects and we try to please him as far as possible. This offer of wrestling is a great favor of his, but the fact is that we are simply boys. We sometimes play in the forest of Vrindavan with our friends who are our own age. We think that to combat persons of equal age and strength is good for us, but to fight great wrestlers like you would not be good for the audience. It would contradict their religious principles. Krishna thus indicated that the celebrated strong wrestlers should not challenge Krishna and Balaram to fight. <clears throat> In reply to this, Chanura said, My dear Krishna, we can understand very well that you are neither a child nor a young man. You are transcendental to everyone, as is your big brother, Balaram. You have already killed the elephant Kuvalayapida, who is capable of fighting thousands <clears throat> of other elephants. You have killed him in a wonderful way, 
because of your strength, it behooves you to compete with the strongest wrestlers among us. I therefore wish to wrestle with you, and your elder brother Balaram will wrestle with Mushtika. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 43rd chapter of Krishna, the killing of the elephant, Kuvalaya Pida. Haribo! Chapter 44. <clears throat> the killing of Kangsa. After, kill, after Kangsa's wrestlers expressed their determination, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the ki killer of Madhu, confronted Chanura. And Lord Balaram, the son of Rohini, confronted Mushtika. Krishna and Chanura, and then Balaram and Mushtika, locked themselves hand to hand, leg to leg, and each began to press against the other with a view to coming out victorious. They joined palm to palm, calf to calf, head to head, chest to chest, and began to strike each other. The fighting increased as they pushed each other from one place to another. One captured the other and threw him down on the ground and another rushed from the back to the front of another and tried to overcome him with a hold. The fighting increased step by step. There was picking up, dragging and pushing, and then the, le and then the legs and hands were locked together. All the arts of wrestling were perfectly exhibited by the parties as each tried his best to defeat his opponent. But the audience in the wrestling arena was not very much satisfied because the combatants did not appear to be equally matched. They considered Krishna and Balaram to be mere boys before Chanura and Mushtika, who were the strongest wrestlers, as solid as stone. Being compassionate and favoring Krishna and Balaram, the many ladies in the audience began to talk as follows. Dear friends, there is an injustice here. Another said, even in front of the king, this wrestling is going on between incompatible sides. The ladies had lost their sense of enjoyment. They could not encourage the fighting between the strong and the weak. Mushtika and Chanura are just like thunderbolts, <clears throat> as strong as great mountains. And Krishna and Balaram are two delicate boys of very tender age. The principles of justice has already left this assembly. Persons who are aware of the civilized principles of justice will not remain to watch this unfair match. Those taking part in watching this wrestling match are not very much enlightened. Therefore, whether they speak or remain silent, they are being subjected to the reactions of sinful activities. But my dear friends, another lady in the assembly spoke out, just look at the face of Krishna. There are drops of perspiration on his face from chasing his enemy. And his face appears like a lotus flower with drops of water. Another lady said, don't you see how the face of Lord Balaram has turned especially beautiful? There is a reddish hue on his white face 
because he is engaged in a strenuous wrestling match with Mushtika. Another lady in the assembly addressed her friend. Dear friend, just imagine how fortunate is the land of Vrindavan, where the Supreme Personality of Godhead himself is present, always decorated with flower garlands and engaged in tending cows along with his brother, Lord Balaram. He is always accompanied by his coward boyfriends and he plays his transcendental flute. The residents of Vrindavan are fortunate to be able to constantly see the lotus feet of Krishna and Balaram, which are worshipped by great demigods like Lord Shiva and by the goddess of fortune. We cannot estimate how many pious activities were executed by the damsels of Rajabhumi so that they were able to enjoy the Supreme Personality of Godhead by looking upon the unparalleled beauty of his transcendental body. The beauty of the Lord is beyond compare. No one is higher than or equal to him in beauty or of complexion or bodily luster. Krishna and Balaram are the reservoir of all kinds of opulence, namely wealth, strength, beauty, fame, knowledge, and renunciation. The gopis are so fortunate that they can see and think of Krishna 24 hours a day, beginning from their milking the cows, or husking the paddy, or churning the butter in the morning, while engaged in cleaning their houses and washing their floors. They are always absorbed in thought of Krishna. The gopis give a perfect example of how one can execute Krishna consciousness even while performing various types of material engagements. By constantly being absorbed in the thought of Krishna, one cannot be affected by the contamination of material activities. The gopis therefore are perfectly entranced samadhi the highest perfectional stage of mystic power. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is confirmed that one who is constantly thinking of Krishna is a first-class yogi among all kinds of yogis. My dear friend, one lady told another, we must accept the activities of the gopis to be the highest form of piety. Otherwise, how could they have achieved the opportunity of seeing Krishna both morning and evening? In the morning, when he goes to the pasturing ground with the cows, with his cows and cowherd boyfriends, and in the evening when he returns with them, playing on his flute and smiling very brilliantly. When Lord Krishna, the super soul of every living being, understood that the ladies in the assembly were anxious for him, he decided not to continue wrestling, but to kill the wrestlers immediately. The parents of Krishna and Balaram, namely Nanda, Maharaj, Jashoda, Vasudev, and Devaki, were also very anxious because they did not know the unlimited strength of their children. Lord Balaram was fighting with the wrestler Mushtika in the same way that Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, was fighting and wrestling with Chanura. Lord Krishna appeared to be cruel to Chanura, and he immediately struck him thrice with his fist. The great wrestler was jolted to the astonishment of the audience. Chanura then took his last chance and attacked Krishna just as one hawk swoops upon another. Folding his two hands, he began to strike the chest of Krishna, but Lord Krishna was not even slightly disturbed, any more than an elephant is when hit by a flower garland. 
Krishna quickly caught the two hands of Chanura and began to wheel him around. And simply by this centrifugal action, Chanura lost his life. Krishna then threw him to the ground. Chanura fell just like the flag of Indra. And all his nicely fashioned ornaments were scattered hither and thither. Mushtika also struck Balaram, and Balaram returned the stroke with great force. Mushtika began to tremble and vomit blood. Distressed, he gave up his vital force and fell down just as a tree falls down in a hurricane. After the two wrestlers were killed, a wrestler named Kuta came forward. Lord Balaram immediately caught him with his left hand and killed him nonchalantly. A wrestler of the name Shala came forward and Krishna immediately cracked his head with a kick. A wrestler named Toshala came forward and was killed in the same way. Thus all the great wrestlers were killed by Krishna and Balaram and the, wrestler, and the remaining wrestlers fled from the assembly out of fear of their lives. All the cowherd boyfriends of Krishna and Balaram approached them and congratulated them with great pleasure. While trumpets resounded and drums were beaten, the leg bells on the feet of Krishna and Balaram tinkled. All the people gathered there began to clap in great ecstasy. See? Clapping. It's a thing. And no one could estimate the bounds of their pleasure. The brahmanas present began to praise Krishna and Balaram ecstatically. Only Kamsa was morose. He neither clapped nor offered benediction to Krishna. Kamsa resented that the trumpets and drums should be played for Krishna's victory, and he was very sorry that the wrestlers had been killed and had fled the assembly. He therefore immediately ordered the band to stop playing and addressed his men as follows. I order that these two sons of Vasudev be immediately driven out of Mathura. The coward boys who have come with them should be plundered and all their riches taken away. Nanda Maharaj should immediately be arrested and killed for his cunning behavior, and that rascal Vasudev should also be killed without delay. Also, my father, Ugrasena, who has always supported my enemies against my will, should be killed. When Kamsa spoke in this way, Lord Krishna became very angry with him, and within a second, he jumped onto the high dais of King Kamsa. Kamsa was prepared for Krishna's attack, for he knew from the beginning that Krishna was to be the supreme cause of his death. Kamsa immediately unsheathed his sword and prepared to answer the challenge of Krishna with sword, sword, sword and shield. As Kamsa wielded his sword up and down, hither and thither, Lord Krishna, the supreme powerful Lord, caught hold of him with great force. The Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is the shelter of the complete creation and from whose lotus navel the whole creation is manifested, immediately knocked the crown from the head of Kamsa and grabbed his long hair in his hand. He then dragged Kamsa from his seat to the wrestling dais and threw him down. Then Krishna at once straddled his chest and began to strike him over and over again. Simply from the strokes of Krishna's fists, Kamsa lost his vital force. Oh. 
I mean, I remember how he, 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 he was the one who grabbed his sister's hair on the chariot, right? And now Krishna grabbed his hair. To assure his parents that Kamsa was dead, Lord Krishna dragged him just like a lion drags an elephant after killing it. When people saw this, there was a great roaring sound from all sides as some spectators expressed their jubilation and others cried in lamentation. From the day Kamsa had heard he would be killed by the eighth son of Devaki, he was always thinking of Krishna with his wheel in hand. And because he was very much afraid of his death, he was thinking of Krishna in that form 24 hours a day, without stopping, even while eating, while walking, and while breathing. And naturally, he got the blessing of liberation. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is stated, Sadatad Bhava Bhavita, Bhagavad Gita 8.6. A person gets his next life according to the thoughts in which he is always absorbed. Kamsa was thinking of Krishna with his wheel, which means Narayana, who holds a wheel, conch shell, lotus flower, and club. <clears throat> According to the opinion of authorities, Kamsa attain sarupya mukti after death that that is to say he attained the same form as narayana vishnu on the vaikuntha planets all the inhabitants have the same bodily features as narayana after his death kangsa attained liberation and was promoted to vaikuntha loka from this instance we can understand that even a person who thinks of the Supreme Personality of Godhead as an enemy gets liberation or a place in a Vaikuntha planet. So what to speak of the pure devotees who are always absorbed in favorable thoughts of Krishna. Even an enemy killed by Krishna gets liberation and is placed in the impersonal Brahma Jyoti. Since the Supreme Personality of Godhead is all good, Anyone thinking of him, either as an enemy or as a friend, gets liberation. But the liberation of the devotee and the liberation of the enemy are not the same. The enemy generally gets the liberation of sayuja, and sometimes he gets sarupya, liberation. Kangsa had eight brothers, headed by Kanka, all of them younger than he. And when he learned, when and when they learned that his their elder brother had been killed, they combined together and rushed toward Krishna in great anger to kill him. Kangsa and his brothers were all Krishna's maternal uncles, brothers of Krishna's mother Devaki. When Krishna killed Kangsa, he killed his maternal uncle, which is against the regulations of Vedic injunctions. Although Krishna is independent of all Vedic injunctions, he violates the Vedic injunctions only in inevitable cases. Kangsa could not be killed by anyone but Krishna, therefore Krishna was obliged to kill him. But as far as Kangsa's eight brothers were concerned, Balaram took charge of killing them. Balaram's mother Rohini, although the wife of Basudev, was not the sister of Kangsa, Therefore, Balaram took charge of killing all of Kangsa's eight brothers. He immediately took up an available weapon, most probably the elephant's tusk, which he carried, 
and killed the eight brothers one after another, just as a lion kills a flock of deer. Krishna and Balaram thus verified the statement that the Supreme Personality of Godhead appears in order to give protection to the pious and to kill impious demons who are always enemies of the, of the demigods. The demigods from the higher planetary system showered flowers, congratulating Krishna and Balaram. Among the demigods were powerful personalities like Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, and all joined together in showing their jubilation over Kangsa's death. There were beating of drums and showering of flowers from the heavenly planets, and the wives of the demigods danced in ecstasy. The wives of Kangsa and his eight brothers were aggrieved at the sudden death of their husbands, and all of them struck their foreheads and shed torrents of tears, crying loudly and embracing the bodies of their husbands, which lay on the wrestling dice, the wives of Kangsa and his brothers lamented, addressing the dead bodies. Our dear husbands, you are so kind and are the protectors of your dependents. Now, after your death, we are also dead, along with your homes and children. We no longer look auspicious, on account of your death, the auspicious functions to take place, such as the sacrifice of the bow, have all been spoiled. Our dear husbands, you treated persons ill who were faultless, and as a result, you have been killed. This is inevitable, because a person who torments an innocent person must be punished by the laws of nature. We know that Lord Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He is the Supreme Master and Supreme Enjoyer of everything. Therefore, one who neglects his authority can never be happy. And ultimately, as you have, he meets death. Since Krishna was kind and affectionate to his aunts, he solaced them as far as possible. The ritualistic ceremonies performed after death were then conducted under the personal supervision of Krishna because he happened to be the nephew of all the dead princes. After finishing his bus this business, Krishna and Balaram immediately released their father and mother, Basudev and Devaki, who had been imprisoned by Kangsa. Krishna and Balaram fell at their parents' feet and offered them prayers Vasudeva and Devaki had suffered so much trouble from Kangsa because Krishna was their son. Devaki and Vasudeva were fully conscious of Kangsa's exalted position as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Therefore, although Krishna touched their feet and offered them obeisances and prayers, they did not embrace him, but simply stood up to hear the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Although Krishna was born as their son, Basudev and Devaki were always conscious of his position. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 44th chapter of Krishna, the killing of Kangsa. Hare Krishna.
um, a question. When does do the enemies of Krishna uh, attain Sarupya Mukti and when do they attain uh, Salokya Mukti? Uh, Sayuja Mukti or Svarupya? That was why I, I was astonished that Kamsa got um, Svarupya Mukti. You're astonished that he attains Sarupya. Well, it, it varies. Like Putana was a special case. She was one of the demons who, when she killed, when was killed by Krishna, attained um, a position in a category of his mother in the spiritual world. And then there was Agasura, who was, um, Krishna was demonstrative about having him enter into his body when he killed when the, when Agasura killed the boys inside then Krishna brought him back to life and then he expanded himself until Agasura left his body but then he caused the spirit soul of Agasura to stay hovering in the air until he came out and then in front of everybody they saw that his spirit soul merged into Krishna and it varies, really, because Prabhupada explains that oftentimes, for instance, with uh, Jain Vijay in their various movements through um, first Hiranyakashipu and Hiranyaka, and then uh, Kumbhakarna, Ravana, then uh, um, Shishupal, and Dantavakra, that um, we see sometimes that that the Shastra is saying that they attained um, Sayuja Mukti, but then Prabhupada explains that that's only temporary. They merge into the body of Krishna or they attain Sayuja Mukti, but he says in the seventh canto that after that, then they're properly placed back in their original position. That was definitely the case with Jain Vijay. So I'm I'm giving a sort of meandering answer, but but it, it's different in different cases. It's not that there's a an exact formula that's mentioned that because of this or that you know somebody attains. But generally, those who had had some connection, uh, like Putana, is said because she approached as as the mother, then Krishna considered that. More to add? Well, one, one thing we might want to, to mention is that only Krishna, only by killed, killed by being killed by Krishna can you get <clears throat> uh, liberation, like true liberation in the spiritual world. None of the other uh, uh, incarnations give that benediction. So that's one very special consideration that if you... Yes. Yeah, they they can't get Srupimukti except if they get killed by Krishna. And I think following from what Vaishyajikaprabhu said, there's variety. And ones who become so vociferous or so needing, or, or, or Krishna kills them personally by his hand, then they get some special, you know, benediction. 
But it's like you said, there's no hard and fast rule. Krishna does what he wants. It's, 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 it's Krishna's will, actually. He decides if they happen to do something that, you know, pleases him in a certain way. Like he was mentioning Shushupal, you know, he gave him a benediction that he could blaspheme him a hundred times, you know, it was like a blessing. And as soon as the hundred was over and the hundred and first came out of his mouth and the Rajasuya sacrifice and Narajudish tear, whoops, out came the Shudasan Chakra and it started coming to Krishna very, I mean, Shushupal very quickly. And because he had been thinking of Krishna his whole life, he got that benediction, like, like Prabhu was saying. Just as it was hitting and coming towards him, he, he thought, Krishna's really beautiful, isn't he? And he got some actual appreciation. Any other reflections or questions? Interesting also was the last uh, where um, Devaki and Vasudev are not embracing Krishna. I was really astonished to hear this. They're just standing up and waiting the command of. The they had a lot of Aishwarya in their relationship, so they were there was that distance because of that. Unlike uh, um, Nanda and Yashoda, Prabhu. Just thinking, um, like the transition from Vrindavan Leela to Mathura, it's like. Um, I, I've read um, like Shivaram Swami's book, Krishna Sangati. It goes into detail of like Krishna leaving Vrindavan and how it's a pretty big deal. But in the Krishna book or the Bhagavatam, it kind of just casually not. It's, it's it seems like we just we just transitioned from Vrindavan to Mathura, and it's like kind of quickly. Um, and but it's like a whole different category of Krishna and Vrindavan is a whole different category of like Krishna seems so. yeah and then obviously this is a summary of the 10th canto when we go more deeply into it for instance uh, several years here we read the Briyat Bhagavatam Rita all the way through and the pathos in that section is extensively described and it's it's very dramatic. The things, the the details of the ways that the gopis try to get Krishna to stay, and the things they say to him, and they, he says to them, and what he's thinking, and so forth, is is a very powerful section. Any other reflections or questions, Prabhu? I found it very interesting to uh, to hear all the details about how Krishna very creatively killed demons in different ways uh, and it reminded me of, of how uh, uh, yeah you know movies and stuff like that when people are very sometimes very attracted to seeing these things uh, it's a it kind of made me understand that it's that is coming from somewhere it's coming yeah. from here you know the James Dean rebel without a cause no, you all don't know anything. <laughs> well, it was a classic. James Dean was a swashbuckler, and he had this persona that became very popular, which was uh, Devil May Care. He'd you know blow into town, and 
you know, nobody could tell him what to do. Of course, he died in a car crash, I think, was decapitated or something like that. But the fact is that people were attracted to him because of that. And this scene of Krishna going in Mathura and just kind of, he has this way of sauntering in with his friends and like, hey, hey, give me that. You want to give me that? And it's like, no, you don't want to give me that? Okay. <laughs> you know, like, hey, guys, take it. And so that's there, that that whole mood that people are really attracted to the the person who's lawless and can actually handle himself and just tells everyone what to do and where to go. But Krishna's the only one to actually pull it off. Everybody else eventually gets smashed by it. And what was the other part you said? Because I had another thought about it. Uh, no, that people are attracted to seeing these things. You know, like no, and also the thinking. the wrestling. I mean, is doesn't that remind you of WWF? The centrifugal, centrifugal force and all that. I mean, people, they love that. And there's all these Mushtika and Chernura figures nowadays. You know, these, even when I was a kid, they had uh, big time wrestling. And they have these big, huge guys, you know, slamming each other onto the, onto the mat and everything and swinging them around <laughs> all these moves. And uh, this is where it all comes from. It's WWF. Anything else? Reflections or questions? Then that brings us to the Gayatri break. We will be back here at 35 past the hour. Gorpramanande Haribo. Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, hey, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman.